This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. The first time I had my nails painted was as part of a special activity day in high school. I distinctly remember other boys watching me, deciding it was hilarious, and getting it done too while loudly proclaiming how funny it was. This moment sticks in my brain till today because while I had done it to look good, they were doing it as a joke. Now I realize that part of what rankled was their casual homophobia. It wasn't directed towards me, but it made me think about how rare it was for an adult to admonish my classmates for their prejudices or to support me and build my confidence. In this episode of the Second Story Podcast, Teller Jess Kadish shares a story of a similar moment that she experienced from the teacher's side. When a student she's working with seems to need support, Jess struggles with how to be there for him in the right way. Recorded live in Chicago in October 2021, Second Story is proud to present Quiero Ser La Bruja. It's late September, the first day of spring in Buenos Aires. I'm in the backyard of the Casa del Niño, a Catholic children's center where I'm a teaching artist, playing tag with some of the littlest chiquitos. Fast footsteps surround me and shouts mingle with laughter as I chase the kids from the rusty swing set to the soccer goal whose net is long since gone. Suddenly, I hear my name cutting through the chaos. Jesse! I look up and there is Alan, kicking up a trail of dust behind him. Que onda, Alan? I'm trying to keep a straight face, but it's hard. He's got an electric blue clown wig on his head. He reaches me and stumbles to a stop, holding something behind his back. His baby round face is flushed and his fluorescent Windex colored curls are all over the place. Chessy Bonello! He hands me a foot tall black and white polka dotted hat adorned with a flimsy plastic banana and a faded pink vinyl flower. It's springtime, why not? I laugh and tug it over my head. He is delighted and claps his hands. I feel more silly than pretty, but gracias, Alan. Una foto, una foto. Another teacher is already prepared with her camera. I kneel and Alan throws his skinny arm around my shoulder and mugs for the shot, looking sideways at me with a sly grin. Our little photo shoot has drawn a small crowd by now. A group of boys from his class hangs back, pointing and staring. One whispers something to another, who laughs, then spits. Alan's smile fades just the tiniest bit as the flash goes off. This kind of thing happens just about every time he heads to my theater class instead of outside to play soccer. Mm. Alan's voice is high-pitched, his walk a bit less careless than that of the other boys. He sits at the girls' table at lunch, the popular girls' table, I should add, which is quite a feat, given how socially vicious girls can be too. They've accepted him as one of their own, making room for him on the rickety benches where they sit all squeezed together at noon every day, saying grace, in the nombre del Padre, del Hijo, y del Espíritu Santo. Amen. Bumping elbows as they eat pizza or fideo or sopa paraguasha, this cheesy cornbread. A lot of the kids here are from Paraguay, just over the border to the north. 
He is rarely without his constant companion, a pale-skinned, blue-eyed little girl named Sharon. His skin is just a few shades darker than hers, and still lighter than many of the kids in Florencio Varela, who come from indigenous Paraguayan families, teased mercilessly by the Italian and Spanish-descended white Argentine kids. Alan's one of the white kids. I don't yet have the language to explain at that age, but understand that things would be even tougher for him around here if he weren't. So this was a decade ago, my second time living in Buenos Aires. The first time I'd gone to study at the university, get fluent in Spanish, and have a terribly misguided but delicious fling with a woman I met in a bar who wasn't really sure how she felt about labels like gay, but was pretty sure she wanted to do things you might call gay with me. And you know what? That was fine with me. After I left, I let go of her well enough, but I couldn't let go of the place itself. The city slipped under my skin and settled somewhere inside my spine. I kept having dreams that my Argentine cell phone was ringing, and when I'd pick up, I'd be back in apartment 9A with my host mom, Mami Vivi, eating membricho con queso blanco together on her small pink sofa and watching novelas. The dreams wouldn't stop. I had to go back. So there I was again a year later, this time not to study but to teach. This time, that pink sofa is now my bed, and it's too short, and my legs hang off the side, but I don't care. I get to wake up every day in a place that I dream about. And I have to wake up extra early in the mornings to teach, since it's an hour's drive to the casa. When I arrive, Ann usually runs up to greet me with a big hug and something along the lines of, can I help you with the costumes today? He's shy on stage, but loves the prep time beforehand, where we trek into the storage room and dig through overstuffed closets and swollen cardboard boxes filled with donated dress-up clothing, long past its prime, but still filled with limitless imaginative potential. Alan sees this potential better than anyone. He is meticulous with his choices, carefully weighing one dress against another before deciding which one a particular young actress should wear that day. He always remembers which pieces we used during our last rehearsal and which ones we haven't yet tried. He is exuberant with his advice. Jesse, debemos usar eso. I know esto. Déjalo. Okay, okay. We'll go with that one, Alan. I trust you. And he isn't shy about carrying as many accessories as he can into the classroom. Tiaras, scepters, plastic high-heeled shoes with broken buckles. He never wears them, though always stepping back as his female classmates pounce on the pile. The girls accept him, but only to a point. The dresses still belong to them. As I watch him watching them, I have this unshakable impulse to take him aside and tell him, hey, the, the way you are, uh, the way that's different from everyone else, uh, I'm that way too. It's, it's okay. There will be a time and a place for you to have the dresses if you still want them later on. Just not here. Not now. They don't understand. Of course, I mentally check this impulse, reminding myself that it's completely inappropriate to speculate about an 11-year-old's sexuality or gender. It's not as though he's told me anything. Still, I'm convinced, which I find dismaying. I mean, I've known I was queer since I was 14, but who's to say that allegedly gives me some kind of laser ability to determine other people's queerness, especially across cultural and linguistic lines. I'm ashamed of myself for buying into all the stereotypes, 
what because he loves costumes and theater and has a high-pitched voice and sits at the girls table he's gay I've long resented these stereotypes because they're exactly the reason why people don't usually suspect my queerness at least not at first as a little girl I was so into gender norms I referred to my favorite outfit combination as dress tights and girl shoes I hadn't learned the word femme yet I remind myself of all of this and yet this relentless impulse to try to provide some kind of clarity on the bewildering path of being a maybe queer kid like I was won't go away. When I was his age, I wished so badly that someone could see through me, read my mind and say, you know when you watch Love and Basketball with your team and you're pretending to ooh and ah over Omar Epps, but actually you're waiting until Sanaa Lathan comes back on screen? Listen, it's fine, I've been there. No one ever did. I wonder if any of them wanted to then like I want to now. One day in the classroom in Florencio Varela, we've just dropped the costume boxes on the floor and instead of stepping back this time, Alan immediately goes for a witch's costume. Tall pointy black hat, cobweb dress, the whole nine. Hoy quiero ser la bruja. Today, he wanted to be the witch. The girls do not like this idea and they veto it with gusto. One pair of hands snatches the dress away, another takes the hat. His face falls. The girls grow gentler. You're the boy. You have to be the boy. Otherwise, we won't have any boys in the play. He returns reluctant to the now ravaged clothing pile and selects a three sizes too big white button-down shirt, a tie, and a Santa hat. Before we start class for the day, I give a quick pep talk about <clears throat> how throughout theater history, boys have played girl characters and sometimes girls play boy characters now too. My words are met with snickers and eye rolls, not out of cruelty, but because theater history doesn't impact their lives very much and my Spanish sounds funny and I'm just another rich American white lady who's only there for a few months, so why should they take my word for it? One of the teachers has us all pose for a picture at the end of that rehearsal. In the shot, Alan's looking longingly at the ground, his tie askew, massive white pom-pom at the tip of the red hat hanging over his shoulder. I put my hand on his shoulder after the flash goes off, still lacking the right words, even in English. I also want to be the bruja, Alan, but not the black hat kind, more like the pink dress kind a gay Glinda the Good Witch who can wave a sparkly femme wand and tell you you're gonna be okay. I start to wonder who else might tell him this. Uh, my guess is his regular school won't. It's so crowded that students only have half days. No time for luxuries like one-on-one -on -one conversation unless there's discipline involved. The Casa del Nino certainly won't. It's a warm and caring place, but it's run by the Catholic Church which is the exact reason why I keep quiet about my own queerness while I'm here. The kids here are so hungry for affection. We say hello and goodbye with hugs and cheek kisses. It seems like I'm always hearing, hold my hand, Jesse, or can I sit on your lap, Jesse? And I know how scared straight folks can get at the thought of queer folks being that close to children. And I know how dangerous straight folks can be when they're scared. It's times like this when not looking gay, <laughs> my alignment with what's perceived as feminine, the very thing that puts Alan at risk protects me and fills me with doubt. 
how can I tell a kid it's going to be okay if he's the one who's vulnerable and I'm the one who's hiding? And then pushing the kids on the swings one afternoon, it hits me. I barely even know about the real here, the neighborhood outside the casa. <laughs> International volunteers aren't allowed to go there. Despite a huge sign that reads, please don't throw trash, protect our children, the alley on the other side of the fence is buried in garbage so deep it swallows your ankles and its stench surrounds the swings. I've never visited their homes, never met their parents or grandparents, never seen nightfall on their streets. I'm losing my breath, running back and forth, trying to keep three swinging kids in the air at once, their exuberant shouts of mass, mass ringing in my ears. And I realize, what right do I have to imagine myself as some kind of magical, it's okay to be gay fairy for this kid whose world is nothing like the one I grew up in? A world I will soon leave. A world which he will continue to navigate as he's been doing since long before I got here. I decided to broach the topic with my boss, Silvia, a woman of infinite patience and kindness who drives me to the casa from the city with her every day. Even the day I overslept and made us both late. That day, when I finally burst into the car, nearly in tears from my guilt, she said, I knew that you would come and that you would learn from this. But there's something else I need to hear her say today. <clears throat> Silvia? See, they see me. Her eyes are fixed on the road, but she's listening. Alan, the only boy in my class? It seems like the other boys don't accept him. She smiles knowingly. Ah, see, Alan is special. I feign ignorance. What do you mean by that? She opts not to clarify, but instead continues. He has always been that way since he was very young. We accept all children for who they are. You know, his mother is too, we think. She has a woman friend who lives with them at home. Before I can even hide my surprise, she continues. We had another student years ago who was just like him. I ran into him recently. We stopped to talk. Oh, he was wearing this beautiful dress. Very nice boy. It's always good to see the children again after they've grown up. We pull up to the trash-strewn alley and Sylvia shifts to park, ending our conversation. She has confirmed what I hoped was true. The words we use aren't the same, but her steadfast love and support extends to all the kids, special or otherwise, and the teachers respect who he is. And it seems he's not alone at home either. I thank her and I mean it. A week later, my last day arrives time for their final performance. As has become our routine, 30 minutes beforehand, Alan and I head to the dress-up storage room together. I slide open the unwieldy door that always sticks and Alan starts to count the costumes. I look around. No one's coming. I tap him on the shoulder. Alan, tengo algo para vos. He's confused. What do you mean? I hand him a small blue jewelry box. Open it. Inside is a silver bracelet with pink white pearls. His eyes widened for just a split second 
Then he stifles his reaction and looks at me hesitantly. I don't blame him for being a little skeptical. I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing either. I quiet my nerves and crouch next to him. You have a real talent for choosing good costumes, but you never get to keep what you choose for the girls. So you get to keep this. Like It was mine, but I want you to have it. I mean, you can share it if you want, but it's for you. Vos sos perfecto exactamente como sos. ¿Me entendés? The more I talk, the shakier my Spanish gets, but he's looking at me kindly, like he understands at least the general concept of what I'm trying to say, and I'm grateful for his generosity. He thanks me shyly and tucks the bracelet into his pocket. Maybe he'll wear it later. Then he grins widely, claps his hands as if to say, okay, back to work, and heads out the door, back toward the classroom, his arms full of dresses. Vamonos, Jesse, he calls back over his shoulder. And as he continues down the hall, making his own way through his own world, and in this moment, I understand that if he is gonna be okay, which I hope so fiercely that it hurts that he will be, it's not because of any fairy magic spell of mine, but his own expertise and the love of the people who surround him day in and day out, year after year. Together, they know the way better than I do. This story was produced by Ali Drum, curated by Amanda Delheimer, and directed by Matt Ferries. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.